a spike in community COVID transmissions. We need to make sure that our workplaces are safe, even those essential workplaces. Concerns about workers at a poultry plant and why they came to work sick. An elderly man with dementia assaulted on camera. The suspect began yelling racist remarks at the victim. The latest on the search for the suspect. And how COVID is good for ICBC. No one wants to come and get their cars done. With fewer crashes, why the insurer isn't passing the savings on to you. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. New concerns tonight in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic in this province. There's been a serious spike in cases today. We have 71 new infections <laughs> for a grand total now of 1,795 and sadly, three additional deaths. Keith Baldry has more on the jump in numbers today and why community outbreaks are once again the focus of public health officials. We continue to experience new community outbreaks in British Columbia. There has indeed been a spike in new cases, and the concern from public health officials now is that COVID-19 continues to spread in the general community. And this, of course, is very, very concerning to me and to all of us. This tells us that we have more work to do to break the chains of transmission in our communities. Despite that spike in new cases overnight, those in hospital and critical care have declined in number as recoveries escalate. Still, that overnight spike had Dr. Henry warning today the numbers have to get a lot better as in there being no cases before various restrictions can be altered. So important for us to try and get uh, this as down to zero as much as we can now. Until we clear this hurdle, we can't begin to make changes. And today came a plea to stay home at this critical time if you are sick, a message that goes to employers as well. If you are ill, whether you feel it's a cold, whether you feel it's allergies, whether you are concerned you might have COVID-19, stay home, stay away from others, and immediately contact us and we can help you get tested if that's appropriate. And Health Minister Adrian Dix also weighed in on that point. Sometimes I think there's a sense that it's the brave thing to do or the courageous thing to do to play hurt or to work sick. Well, that can no longer be the case. And that is the responsibility of both employers and employees. That's something we have to continue to work on, but we have to especially have that happen now. All right, Keith joins us now live uh, with talk of another looming concern we've heard mentioned before. Keith, mm -hmm. it'd be great if we got the numbers down to zero in the next little while, but there is still concern about a second wave of infections in the fall. Yeah, pandemics come in waves, so the second wave expected in the fall. And I asked Dr. Bonnie Henry about this. She's, she's been commenting on the second wave for some time. Not other public officials are, but she's noting that problem. In light of today's comments by Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the U.S. Center for Disease Control, uh, he uh, today voiced his concern that he thinks the second wave could even be more lethal and more serious because it will come at a time when the regular influenza season begins in September and October. Uh, a very sobering assessment by him. I put it to Dr. Henry. She agrees. This is a very worrying situation, which is why it's imperative right now to get those numbers down to zero. Again, here's Dr. Henry. So important for us to try and get uh, this as down to zero as much as we can now. And that's where we've been emphasizing how important it is not to be around others if you're sick. 
because come the fall, when we start to see other respiratory viruses again, it gets much more complicated for us. And that's when we're planning. We're planning as well for the, for the fall when we start to see respiratory virus season. We know that if, uh, influenza puts people in hospital every year. And we know that this is going to put people in hospital as well. So yes, there is very much a potential of a surge um, come the fall. It'll be interesting to see if that actually does happen. Keep an eye on tomorrow's case numbers. Hopefully this is just a one-day spike when you throw in what happened to that poultry processing plant. Uh, or if it's a reflective, if there's a big number tomorrow, it could be reflective of the behavior we saw on Easter weekend when a lot of people were traveling. Right. Stay home, stay healthy. Still the mantra for all of us. Yeah. Thanks, Keith. Public health officials are expressing a lot of concern about the COVID-19 outbreak that has forced the closure of that Vancouver poultry processing plant. 28 workers from the United Poultry Company have tested positive. And this outbreak is seen as a warning that workplace COVID-19 prevention protocols must be stepped up. Grace Key reports. How 28 workers at United Poultry in Vancouver all tested positive for COVID-19 is still under investigation. We do know staff members continue to work while showing symptoms. We also expect that employers need to pay attention to this and need to be responsible. You must have measures in place to ensure everyone who's working is healthy and can keep a safe distance from each other in the workplace. We do not penalize employees for staying home if they are ill during this pandemic. The Canadian Food and Inspection Agency and Vancouver Coastal Health are now investigating. Well, at this plant, uh, staff were provided with gloves and with plastic shields to protect them. So those types of measures can, of course, mitigate in situations where there can't be two meters distancing. But clearly something went wrong here that allowed for transmission of COVID-19. So that's why we'll need to follow up with the inspectors responsible for this plant. But the nature of the work can be challenging when it comes to protecting workers. Employees tend to work close to each other inside the plant. Now, that's being addressed across the country, but still, uh, the environment inside a plant is typically very cool and humid. Uh, and viruses tend to like that kind of environment. Another plant owned by the same company was inspected and there were no health concerns. There's also no evidence that the virus spreads through the food supply chain. United Poultry has been shut down for now and workers and close contacts told to self-isolate. Grace Key, Global News. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is doubling down on his calls for financial help from higher levels of government. The impact of COVID-19 has put Vancouver and most Canadian cities in critical financial distress. Since the crisis began, the city has had to lay off 20% of its workforce. Kennedy says this is not the time to make further cuts and he needs money to keep essential services like firefighters, police, and homeless organizations responding to the needs of the community. To date, neither the federal or provincial governments have offered direct financial help. And while Victoria is making it possible for the first time in our history of the province for municipalities to borrow money to pay for operations, this would saddle Vancouver with a massive deficit. A deficit we could not repay without deep service reductions or large property tax increases in future years. This is a poison chalice which I categorically reject. Well, with British Columbians urged to stay indoors and off the roads, questions are being raised tonight about why drivers aren't getting financial relief. Pressure is mounting on ICBC to release recent crash statistics, but until they do, 
Richard Zussman found more proof the insurer is saving millions during the pandemic. At Penny Auto Body in Vancouver, work is getting done. It's just not as much work as there normally is. We've seen a drop of like probably around 20% of uh, cars coming in, people getting their cars repaired. Auto body shops across British Columbia are seeing the same thing. Some mechanics reporting drop-offs as high as 80%. So now is, there's no more reservations. It's mainly we just take what we get. Less work doesn't necessarily mean less crashes. But with ICBC not providing the public with crash data, it's unclear what the impact of the pandemic is having on the public insurer. We're seeing fewer crashes on the road, there's no question about that. But there are also negative financial impacts. And releasing one factor in the absence of other key information about the financial situation of our Crown Corporation could be misleading to British Columbians. The province is trying to assess whether less cars on the means lower risk and whether drivers should receive a discount on insurance like the private insurers have provided to drivers. Well at a time when you've got every other insurer in this country finding ways to better support their customers, we've seen nothing from ICBC except delay after delay after delay. ICBC waived cancellation fees last week but it actually took a full week to actually be approved by the independent BC Utilities Commission meaning frustrated ratepayers showed up for seven days and were told they still needed to pay to cancel. We announced the program on Friday, so I don't think that's a long uh, time to wait, but I understand people's, people are anxious. They want to make sure that they're not wasting a penny in these very difficult times. As for a larger rebate, the province is expecting a report from ICBC in the next few weeks and will then make it public. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. WestJet is announcing another round of layoffs. Effective early next month, the Calgary-based airline is reducing its work boy, uh, workforce by a further 3,000 people. The company says it's using the federal government's emergency wage subsidy program to retain as many employees as possible, but with a number of passengers at less than 5% of pre-COVID numbers, difficult cuts have to be made. Last week, WestJet sent layoff notices to 1,700 pilots. Well, the federal government is rolling out another multi-billion dollar aid package to people hard hit by the COVID-19 crisis. Today's announcement, $9 billion for post-secondary students who normally would be starting summer jobs right about now. Aaron MacArthur reports. Campuses across the country empty. Students at home writing exams, worrying about what their summer will look like. For weeks, the federal government has been promising support for students. Wednesday, the Prime Minister laid out $9 billion in funding. This benefit is designed for you. If you're a post-secondary student right now, if you're going to college in September, or if you graduated in December 2019. Under the emergency benefit, students will be eligible for $1,250 a month until August. Students who are caring for someone or living with a disability are eligible for $1,750 a month. It's less than what the CERB pays. These people still have the same bills as everybody else. Students still have to pay rent. They still have to pay their cell phone bill. Uh, there's still people that are being, you know, potentially laid off or running out of their savings. While the short-term money is meager, some student groups say it will help. It also supports students who want to go back to school in the fall to be able to do so without uh, a lot of financial hardship. Part of the package announced Wednesday will see student grants doubled. Full-time students who qualify can apply for $6,000.
It's 3600 for part-time studies. The government will provide up to $5,000 for future education for volunteer work. And the government also planning to provide 76,000 summer jobs. These placements will be in sectors that need an extra hand right now, or that are on the front lines of this pandemic. The $9 billion spending proposal still needs to be tabled and passed in the House of Commons. The bureaucracy largely in place to begin payments by May. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Canada's movie and television production industry is releasing some pretty grim statistics during the COVID-19 shutdown. This set built in Richmond's Gary Point Park is one of many sitting idle these days. Filming of a Netflix series called Midnight Mass was set to start mid-March but was suspended due to the pandemic. The Canadian Media Producers Association says a production shutdown lasting until the end of June will put as much as $2.5 billion worth of film production at risk and could impact more than 170,000 jobs. Making matters worse is the timing of the shutdown. Although we're uh, known internationally for our winters, is that uh, we make use of our summers to uh, get work done. And many films uh, shoot on location, they shoot outside, they take advantage of good weather. And uh, so the summers offer that. They take advantage of locations that are easily accessible in the spring, summer and fall. And so that's when we see our highest levels of production. It was very heartened to hear that the Premier is thinking about how we can find a way to safely restart our film and television industry. We are already work, uh, we are ready to work with the province and the industry to think creatively and make this happen while keeping everyone safe. Because if we can, Vancouver can be, uh, be among the first places in the world that reopens for business in this multi-billion dollar sector. So that's the good news that provincial and municipal governments are looking ahead to resurrecting Hollywood North as soon as possible. The association says of the $2.5 billion lost, it's estimated that up to $1.4 billion would have been spent on labour. Well, yesterday we brought you the stories of several B.C. families frustrated in their efforts to bring loved ones home from India. Today, the Prime Minister responded, promising action from the federal government. But as Nadia Stewart reports, the families say they're sceptical of that plan and its lack of details. Delicate and complicated. That's how Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland describes the situation between Canada and India as the two countries negotiate repatriation flights for Canadians caught in the middle of COVID-19 travel lockdowns. This is complicated and challenging uh, because of the restrictions which are in place in India around the coronavirus. India shut its borders on March 25th. Since then, Ottawa has arranged 10 commercial flights. A federal government source tells Global News some private charters had been scheduled but were disallowed by the Indian government. Gina Takar says permits for the eight chartered flights her BC-based team arranged were abruptly halted. Conservative MP Tim Upple says he was told by the High Commissioner for Canada to India they did not have enough staff to support both the government and privately chartered flights, which was a key stipulation by the Indian government. And so that's when he said that they, they uh, removed themselves from that process. And that's when the Indian government apparently said that they would not allow uh, the charter uh, process to go through. There are thousands of Canadians in India anxious to return home. The government says it's finalizing eight flights from India to Canada.
there are particularly high demands in some parts of the world, uh, including India, that we are working very, very hard day and night to try and resolve. Tash Rai and her family have been struggling for weeks to get their eight relatives back to B.C. But she says the system set up by the government to decide who receives a ticket is a big part of the problem. They wanted you to book online on your own with a, a, a username and password that the government had provide it. That email was also sent to six other thousand people. The system's a complete flop. Rye is urging the government to prioritize ticket sales, putting families with small children and the elderly at the front of the queue. Officials say they are trying to do this, adding the system is not perfect. Nadia Stewart, Global News. A shocking assault caught on camera. Police say an elderly man with dementia was distraught when he wandered into a convenience store. What happened next is something no one expected, and now police are looking for a suspect. The rest of the video coming up in just over a minute. 50 years since the first Earth Day, but has anything really changed? That story later on the news hour. And this is not the kind of commute anyone would hope for. The lucky results of a crash between a bus and a tram later. Thanks. Right now, though, Vancouver police have released surveillance video as they search for the suspect in an appalling attack on a 92-year-old man with dementia. Catherine Urquhart has the details, including why police are investigating it as a hate crime. Surveillance footage captures this disturbing attack on an elderly man with severe dementia. Police say the suspect yelled racial remarks at the 92-year-old Asian man, referencing COVID-19. Then he pushed him outside, where he fell to the ground and hit his head. Everything about this assault and the behavior of the suspect is despicable. The assault happened at a convenience store near Nanaimo and East 1st Avenue back on March 13th, after the suspect fled. This kind of behavior has no place in our community and country. Police say there has been a spike in hate crimes, notably against the Asian community. In March, 11 hate crimes were reported, five of which were anti-Asian. So far this year, nine anti-Asian crimes have been reported, compared to 12 in all of 2019. Any racializing remarks... Uh, associating with COVID-19 is totally unacceptable. I think this is a time to get together and stand together to combat the virus rather than uh, uh, being divisive. We are urging people who are a victim or a witness of a hate crime to please come forward so the police can investigate fully. The suspect who attacked the elderly man is described as Caucasian in his 50s, about six feet tall with a heavy build. He was wearing a gray button-up shirt over a black t-shirt with a white skull design. He had on a gold bracelet and necklace and several gold rings. Anyone with information is asked to contact Vancouver Police or Crime Stoppers. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A prominent B.C. defense lawyer says the COVID-19 pandemic highlights the importance of bringing the B.C. justice system into the 21st century. The outbreak has shut down the system to all but emergency cases, and BC's trial lawyers say that's creating a massive backlog and could result in hundreds of cases being thrown out. Romina Dea reports. Listen carefully. The silence echoing through the halls of justice across BC. 
Criminal trials shut down, with the exception of urgent matters, including bail hearings, in-custody issues, and applications for warrants. The problem for lawyers is that we're now having to conduct our practice on the phone. Impractical, says criminal defense lawyer Martin Peters. We all need to move into the 21st century. We don't have a secure media system in which I can be by Skype or by Zoom. COVID-19 is an exceptional circumstance which could not have been foreseen by Crown, but it's not an excuse. Hundreds of criminal charges in jeopardy of being thrown out because of unreasonable delays, which could take years. That's foreseeable. And the obligation is for the Attorney General to put in place a system that we can deal with this. That means more judges, more courtrooms, more flexible hearing times. The courts are coming around. Change is on the horizon. Commencing May 4th, the BC Court of Appeal will start hearing all appeals, including non-urgent matters, via video using Zoom. It may be Zoom, it may be Microsoft Teams, it might be some other uh, application entirely. BC's Attorney General says his office has been working closely with the RCMP, Corrections and the courts on getting video conferencing out quickly and securely. Zoom bombings are becoming more prevalent. The FBI warning millions of users after private online meetings have been hijacked with pornography and profanity. There are obviously uh, security challenges that do come with that particular product that have to be dealt with. Uh, And when you're talking about people making appearances from jail uh, to a courtroom, uh, we do need to have a higher level of security. Ramina Dea, Global News. Up next, a troubling twist in Vancouver Island's homeless crisis. Why some say these campers are going too far setting up in a cemetery. And with so much riding on a COVID-19 vaccine... A realistic look at the timeline to develop one. Moving well both ways on the Patello Bridge this evening, seeing some minor congestion on that Columbia on-ramp. And good news, there was a train stopped on the track on Front Street near the Patello, but that has been cleared away. To help you stay safe and at home, Rona is offering three parcel shipping and curbside pickup with online purchases at Rona.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. Concern about COVID-19 closed down a shelter on Vancouver Island. Now, some of the homeless are camping in a Parksville graveyard. And as Sarah McDonald tells us, it comes with the blessing of the neighboring church. The sight of people sleeping where the dead are resting is jarring. But in the time of COVID-19, it's safer than the alternative. People slept between the pews so that there was at least something physically spacing them. This Vancouver Island church had been serving as the sole safe haven for those without one. Imagine eight people being in this space and trying to maneuver in it. There was no way. But that was before the pandemic and physical distancing, something that simply wasn't working inside, forcing the shelter's closure last month. Most of our staff we were putting at risk. And then, of course, we had our guests that we couldn't physically distance. They are safer outside than inside in regards to the capacity for this virus. And that's exactly where those seeking staffed shelters in this community are staying for now with the blessing of local churches and residents. I think the church is doing it, trying its best. It's doing a pretty good job. Local governments need to 
step in. Looking to the government and seeking a more permanent solution to the homelessness crisis. What's happening now is a little bit troublesome, quite frankly. A mandate Parksville's mayor maintains is provincial, though the city has suggested parks and schools be utilized. There's some schools around that aren't being used right now. Why can't we be in one of those schools for, for the number of people? The province is making more beds and shelter space available, but critics say what's being offered is not sufficient for everyone. The one thing most can agree on. Obviously, this is not where humans should actually be staying. Um, and so the pushback that I'm sensing from the community is that, um, you know, there's got to be a space somewhere. This is not a long-term fix. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Dr. Henry and other leading public health officials from around the world have warned we won't fully get back to normal until a COVID-19 vaccine is widely available. A commonly cited timeline for that is about 18 months. But that timeline depends on development and testing going perfectly. And as Ted Chernecki shows us, it's more likely to take much longer. Worldwide, there are now more than 50 vaccines and medicines in the research stage for COVID-19. And some of them have already started human trials, including one being developed at Oxford University. In normal times, reaching this stage would take years. At the same time, we'll invest in manufacturing capability so that if either of these vaccines safely works, then we can make it available for the British people as soon as humanly possible. Despite years of research, they've never been able to find an effective vaccine against the likes of HIV or hepatitis C. So to say a fix for COVID-19 can happen in a year to 18 months might be wishful thinking. Then again, the money and research happening worldwide right now is unprecedented. Obviously, you need to identify the, the virus and then you develop a vaccine. We have identified a virus. And so now is really putting our heads together to advance science so that we can then come up with a treatment. So I am hopeful that we can find a vaccine very soon. In 2016, researchers took a prototype Zika vaccine from lab to first trials in humans in a record 190 days. The first COVID trial just took 63 days, four months faster. But it's the testing that takes the time. So why I understand that we need drugs and vaccines right away, I also think that we cannot rush clinical trials. We have to make sure that things, th those therapeutics and vaccines are actually working and safe. There have been deaths in the past attributed to vaccines that didn't always work. The body's immune system could go haywire. Without proper testing, a vaccine can be more dangerous than the virus itself. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Still ahead, rethinking how we care for seniors. We can never go back to the way things were. We've got to do better. How the COVID crisis could lead to big changes in long-term care homes. Also tonight, new developments in the Nova Scotia shooting investigation and why Mounties did not issue a widespread alert. Traffic is moving well over here tonight at the Burrard Street Bridge. In fact, all three downtown bridges are moving well. Keep in mind, though, due to COVID-19 restrictions, Beach Avenue is blocked eastbound between Stanley Park and the Burrard Street Bridge. At Kermack Collision and Autoglass, the safety and well-being of their employees, customers, and community is their top priority. For essential vehicle repair information, please visit Kermack.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center.
RCMP say they've confirmed the gunman in the weekend rampage in Nova Scotia acted alone. But significant questions remain about how police responded to the shooting and why no emergency alert was issued. Global's Ross Lord has more. As RCMP investigators, with help from the military, comb through the devastation of 16 crime scenes, there's increasing pressure on the Mounties to explain how they reacted, including why they did not initiate an emergency alert instead of using Twitter messaging. Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil says his emergency measures officials were not only ready to issue an emergency alert, they were reaching out to the Mounties. The protocol in place when it comes to EMO, uh, as you know, the emergency alert, uh, the lead agency is the one that has to put the message together. Uh, we would not go from what's happening uh, by Twitter. We would need the, the lead agency to actually craft the message so that we could put that out and no message was received, uh, even though EMO had reached out a number of times throughout the morning uh, to the RCMP. Families and friends of some victims say fewer lives would have been lost if there was a widespread warning. But RCMP management defends its use of Twitter, saying they were in the process of preparing an alert when the gunman was killed. That was 13 hours after the Mounties discovered the first victims and had identified their suspect. So a lot of the delay was based on uh, communications between uh, the EMO and the various officers. And then a discussion about what the uh, message uh, uh, would, would be, how it would be constructed and what it would say. So Some people, that, though, did receive an alert. The U.S. consulate says it used the RCMP's Twitter information to send email alerts to American citizens in Nova Scotia. As they continue investigating, the RCMP say they have a fairly good idea the suspect did not have a Canadian firearms acquisition certificate. Ross Lohr, Global News, Halifax. A left-leaning think tank says the devastating toll from COVID-19 in BC's long-term care facilities shows the current system isn't working. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives says it's time the BC government showed for-profit companies the door and switched over to non-profit and public care. John Waugh reports. Oh, it's really tough. So... We knew it was the end of her life. The heartbreaking thoughts of Sandra Cairns' final hours are still the hardest to bear. We couldn't go there. We couldn't hold her hand. We couldn't tell her that we loved her. It was all quite distressing, to tell you the truth. The 80-year-old is among the residents who've died from COVID-19 while living at the Lynn Valley Care Centre, the seniors' home at the epicentre of the pandemic in this province. What makes me wonder, you know, is the level of care less? I, I feel like it is. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives says the weight of the COVID-19 crisis has exposed the cracks in the for-profit senior care model. These business practices are risky. Uh, they require that staff are working more than one site. The BC government has tried to limit cross-contamination by subsidizing standard wages for all senior care workers for six months. The call is to take it one step further by restricting the sector to only publicly funded or not-for-profit. We know in nonprofits, any surplus revenue uh, is going to go right back into frontline care and it's not going to be going into investors' pockets. The BC Care Providers Association says the timing of this call for change is shameful. To make arguments that somehow that by having simply government-owned operations that there would not be any COVID is just beyond being ludicrous. 
BC's premier said his party has been critical of the for-profit model in the past, and there will likely be changes in the future. Some of the challenges that we anticipated are being uh, graphically highlighted during this time of pandemic. There are a range of things that we're learning right now uh, through this pandemic that are going to change how we do business. For the family of Sandra Cairns in absence of any real closure. Was she afraid? I don't know. That really just kind of haunts us. They feel the beloved 80-year-old would want them to fight for change. There's got to be a better way. This should never happen again. John Hua, Global News. Still to come, Earth Day in the COVID age. We could see a drop in in carbon dioxide emissions this year of 5% or more. How the global pandemic is helping the planet heal. And in sports, the special skills of Chase Claypool from Abbotsford, his unlikely path to being a top NFL prospect. Homeowners living near the Okanagan community of Lumbee are the latest to be worried about flooding. Rising levels in the North Okanagan Lake are putting two homes at risk, and the owners say making matters worse is confusion over who's responsible for managing the water level. The lake is located on a neighboring private property, leaving the threatened homeowners unsure of where to turn. The problem is that we need to figure out who's responsible for the lake. Is it the private owners or is it the ministry? And that's been difficult. We're not getting really any any help from anybody at this point, other than you should call this person and you should call this person. And we, we really don't know what else to do. The homeowners say they could do their own flood mitigation, but first they need to know if there's an issue with private property. Global News has reached out to the neighboring property owners, but they have yet to respond. Caught on video, train versus bus. After the forecast, the stroke of luck that prevented any injuries. All right, let's check in with Christy right now. A bit of a soaker this morning and through the day. Let's see how long it's going to last now. Thanks, Chris. Well, we are catching a break right now, but you're right. A soaker of a day, and you know, this rain is sort of a double-edged sword. We certainly, across the south coast and other parts of the province, we need the rain to reduce that forest fire risk. But when we're talking about the potential for flooding, we have a number of areas with a warning right now. Uh, we, of course, don't need the rainfall or don't want it. Let me show you what we're going to see over the next little while. Just quickly, though, your photo from Monica. Thank you to her showing, uh, yeah, a little pooch there, watching the ice starting to melt. So, yeah. Yes, spring is certainly here and we're starting to see things warm up. So these are the areas that are under the warning in general, Caribou and Chilcotin, uh, Nazco River, as well as the West Road River. Now, what we're expecting is for these regions is showers overnight. So that's going to add to the moisture in those areas. It's not a lot of moisture, but also temperatures tonight are not going to drop down below the freezing mark. So the snow melt will continue even through the overnight periods. Now, tomorrow during the day, though, things won't warm up too much. So that's good news. They've had temperatures in the 20s in a few areas, but we're talking about uh, mid to upper teens, really. Uh, But the showers are expected to be on and off over the next few days. So it's sort of a good news, bad news scenario for those areas. So there's your forecast, everyone. Across the south, a chance of showers, also a risk of thunderstorms across the region tomorrow. For our area, a 60% chance of showers in the morning, breaks in the afternoon, sunshine on Friday, everyone. And I'll leave you with your weather, your central weather, when... Central windows, weather windows, a bit of a tongue twister. This is Olivia. She's come to see Beth Sorensen, her great auntie, staying connected through the window there. All right, back to you guys. So sweet. Thanks, Christy. 
All right, caught on video, a shocking crash between a train and a bus with no one hurt. A traffic camera in Istanbul, Turkey, captures the moment a commuter tram smashes into the side of a bus. The tram comes off the tracks, dragging the bus down the road. Miraculously, neither the bus nor the tram had any passengers at the time, and the drivers were only slightly injured. Lucky. Yikes. All right, time to check in with Squire. Some good news for the Canucks? I mean, sort of? Well, yes. I mean, if things pick up again, it's very good news. I was just going to say about that accident. Good thing no one was in the crosswalk either. Uh, Jacob Markstrom said today, if the NHL resumes, his knee has healed from surgery that he had over a month ago and he'd be ready to go. I don't think I had a bad day with the rehab or, or anything like that. Everything went smooth. We will also hear what he thinks about his impending free agency. Also, as Earth Day turns 50, how the global pandemic is helping nature reclaim the planet. You need from the world of sports with Squire Barnes right now, Squire. Thank you very much, Chris. Jacob Markstrom is back home in Sweden. Sweden make that, waiting to find out, like we all are, if the NHL is going to finish this season. The good news for the Canucks is if the NHL does resume... Jacob Markstrom's knee injury has been completely healed, and he would be able to start in goal right away. Also, good news for Canuck fans, when his free agency comes up, he wants to re-sign in Vancouver. In my mind, like, I want to stay in Vancouver. In my mind, that's, uh, you know, that's my goal. Like, the season isn't over this year either. I'm I'm still hoping we can go back and and play and, you know, make a push in the playoff here. And, uh, you know, obviously... uh, uh, give the people of Vancouver, it's going to be tough to get fans in the building, but, you know, give the people in the city of Vancouver something to, you know, something to cheer for. And uh, so, you know, that's my pretty much 100% of my mindset is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still a Vancouver Canuck and I'm, you know, super proud of being it. And, uh, I have no plans of leaving. As everyone knew, Connor Bedard went number one in the WHL Bantam draft today to the uh, Regina Pats. And there are the rest of the picks for the BC teams in today's first round. Speaking of drafts, tomorrow is the first round of the NFL draft. Rounds two and three are on Friday. And in one of those two days, it's more than likely that Abbotsford's Chase Claypool will be taken. He played receiver at college in Notre Dame. He is now back home here waiting to see who he'll play for in the NFL. Um, you know, obviously, it's something surreal, and something you can't really uh, put your mind uh, on things until it actually happens, until you're in the moment. Takes a shot for Claypool at the pylon. Climbs the ladder. Is he in? Yes, it's a Notre Dame touchdown. That moment for Chase Claypool is being a potential first-round NFL draft pick. This after a monster senior season at Notre Dame, where he led the Fighting Irish in receiving grabbing 66 passes for over 1,000 yards and 13 touchdowns. Serious numbers that place Chase in the top 10 of NCAA football. I think it's the confidence aspect that you kind of walk into your senior season, uh, knowing it's your last season, knowing you have to lay everything on the table, and kind of just knowing you're going to be put in a position to make a play. Um, and once you start making more and more plays, it becomes easier to do. Less than five years ago, Claypool was dominating the high school gridiron for his Abbotsford Panthers. Back then, Chase played basketball and football, but his raw football skills were going unnoticed south of the border. So much like he did on the field, he took matters into his own hands. 
He really started focusing on football around grade 11. And then with that focus, he started to do a lot more uh, seven on seven camps and getting a little more exposed that way. And then sending his film out as well. I posted my film on Facebook and just by fluke, you know, a couple of the right people saw it and uh, I was able to get some opportunities down in the States. Leading up to the draft, the big question was if Claypool would be making those plays as a receiver or tight end. In Chase's mind, he's always been a receiver. NFL scouts, though, were leaning more towards tight end because of his large 6-foot, 4-inch, 238-pound frame. That was until he lit up the combine, running a sub 4.5-second, 40-yard dash. He works hard to determine he's a competitor, so he's kind of like that type of athlete that you really want. As the young man he's turned into, I couldn't be, I couldn't be prouder. And that perhaps is Claypool's greatest attribute, one scouts have no measurement for, his character. When he was in grade 7, he'd wake up at 6 a.m., catch the bus and head to the local rec center to work out. But if you really want to know who Chase Claypool is, it's spelled right here on his bicep and shoulder, where he pays tribute to his older sister Ashley, who took her own life while still in high school. A thousand words won't bring you back. I know because I've tried. Neither will a thousand tears. I know because I've cried. Tell me to meet again. So it's almost saying um, goodbye, but not goodbye forever. He will be drafted in the NFL. Here is Jay Durant, now with a preview of Global News at 11. Jay? Thank you, Squire. The U.S. Center for Disease Control releasing new COVID guidelines for pets after two cats tested positive. And remember those flu vogs designed in honor of B.C.'s provincial health officer? The Dr. Henry Shue pre-sale will go live online tomorrow with proceeds going to COVID-19 fundraising. We'll have those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11, Sophie. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Jay. On this Earth Day, the environmental upside of COVID-19. That's next. Well, it is Earth Day, and just before we talk about how the Earth is changing due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's time to honor one of our BC healthcare heroes. We've been asking for your submissions, and tonight's is a sweet one. It's from <laughs> Elaine DeHoney. She nominated her son, Dr. Cameron DeHoney. Maybe it's DeHoney, but I'm going with DeHoney tonight. He's the head cardiologist at Eagle Ridge Hospital and also a cardiologist at Royal Columbian Hospital. Dr. DeHoney is loved and respected by his patients and fellow workers for his compassion and his commitment. Right now, when coming home, he takes extra precautions to shower and change before any contact with his family. Elaine also says at the moment they can only visit with him and the grandkids from across the backyard. And they can't wait for those hugs again. Dr. DeHoney, your mom, wife Jen, and your children Maya and Thomas are all so proud of you. And we thank you for all you're doing during this difficult time. If you have a healthcare hero to nominate, send your pictures and a little information to us. bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca. Way to go, Dr. DeHoney. All right, today is the 50th annual Earth Day. Amazing that much time's gone by, and the worldwide coronavirus shutdown is giving us a unique look at humanity's impact on the environment. Some of the changes in nature have been profound since the pandemic began. But as Paul Johnson reports, there are still huge challenges going forward. Animals of all kinds wandering into quiet cities. Air that is the cleanest people can remember in their lifetimes. These are snapshots of planet Earth on Earth Day's 50th birthday. And it's a big one. If the economy stays slow, 
Um, if transport stays down, you know, we could see a drop in, in carbon dioxide emissions this year of 5% or more. And that may not sound like that that much, but we've never seen that in the past 75 years. In the span of only a few months, the COVID-19 pandemic has been delivering the kind of emissions reductions that climate activists have been demanding for decades. North America's birthplace of car culture and smog, L.A., has had some of the cleanest air anywhere in the world. It's like going back in time when there was no traffic in L.A. It's really unbelievable. But the pandemic also threatens to reverse progress made in other areas. Most obvious now, the single-use plastics that jam our landfills and foul our oceans. With restaurants having gone to takeout only, no one yet has calculated how much more plastic may be going into the waste stream. This Earth Day is very different because we're usually out doing beach cleanups with the public. Lily Woodbury is with the environmental group Surfrider. She's concerned these extraordinary times will allow government and the plastics industry to backslide on goals to reduce single-use plastics. We already have seen a proliferation of plastics because of the pandemic, and that's because of a lot of misinformation that plastics are more sanitary, which we have found out is false. Well, some may say that last point is debatable. One thing people can do that is certain is to insist on no plastic cutlery with your takeout and use your utensils at home instead. Paul Johnson, Global News. Small things can make it better. All right, let's check in uh, one last time here with Christy for a look at the weather before we go, and uh, thankful for a little, little rain out there these days. Yes, absolutely. A lot of areas around the province need the moisture, although, as we talked about earlier, we're not or we are still concerned about the Caribou and Chilcotin region for flood warnings. Uh, Here's a look at your forecast. Showers in the morning, breaks of blue sky tomorrow afternoon and some sunshine on Friday also. Okay, back to you guys. All right. Thanks, Christy. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thanks for watching. Good night. Stay healthy.